0: Some of you may have traveled down to Warm Springs, Georgia, and visited the Little White House and the Warm Springs Institute for Rehabilitation. That's where the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, would visit to enjoy the therapeutic waters for his own struggle with polio. He bought that property and then organized a nonprofit. Foundation, and for many years it was the only facility dedicated to help these sufferers. While he was president, he would visit the Little White House frequently during World War II, and he even passed away, staying at the Little White House near the end of the war. In the past, many people thought that hot mineral springs could facilitate the healing of certain neurological disorders and diseases. And so there were some famous places that people in the United States would visit, like Warm Spring. People with those maladies would travel to those places and have high hopes that they might be relieved of their pain. Well, however useful that may have been for them, it's never been proven that these hot springs of mineral waters do in fact heal, although they can improve circulation and improve with pain relief. Well, in Jesus' day, there was a pool in Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethsaida. And until the 19th century, there was no clear evidence that it existed. But then there was an archaeological dig that took place in the 1800s and discovered this place near the Lion's Gate in Jerusalem, near the site of the church of St. Anne. Now back in Jesus' day, people were superstitious and they believed that angels came to this pool and would stir up the water. And the first one to get in the pool after it was stirred up would be healed. And so it was common for people with all kinds of debilitating illnesses to gather there and to wait and to hope. Well, our text today centers around Jesus' encounter with an invalid who was at this pool hoping to be healed. So please turn with me to John chapter 5 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's far the reading of God's word. We're going to see in our text today how Jesus pursues this invalid with his mercy. And by his power, he instantly heals him. Now this is noticed by the Pharisees and they immediately attack the man for violating the Sabbath laws. And then they want to know Who healed him and who told him to pick up his mat and walk? Well, then Jesus encounters this man again at the temple. And afterwards, he unequivocally communicates his deity and his authority over the Sabbath by equating himself and his work with the Father. So we're going to explore what these things mean And how these truths ought to impact the way we think and live today. Now the first point that God wants to show us in our text is the display of Christ's power to heal. Sometime after he was in Cana, in Galilee, Jesus travels to Jerusalem to be part of one of the Jewish feasts. And John describes for his non-Jewish readers this Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And it's sad, isn't it, that these people were hoping in this superstition. And it's a cruel irony, don't you think, that the speediest of the lame who got in the pool first would be healed? It was a crowded area. There were multitudes, the text says, of blind, lame, paralyzed invalids. They would gather there. They would be brought perhaps by family members and friends. And many of them probably became beggars and would try to collect funds from passers-by to support them and, and their family members that took care of them. And so here Jesus purposely comes looking for this man. This man who had this malady 38 years. He was an invalid. And Jesus sees him lying there. And we're told that Jesus knew that he had been there for a long time, and so at the end of verse 6, he asked the man, do you want to be healed? Now stop for a moment and think about that question. Of course he wants to be healed. Why would he be at this pool if he didn't want to be healed? But you know, Jesus' questions almost always go deeper than they first appear. He had been in this condition for 38 years and never healed. Perhaps Jesus is implying that he's, if he really wants to be healed, he's looking in the wrong place. If he really wants to be healed, he ought to be at the temple. He ought to be praying to the Lord. Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows that his problem is more than just physical paralysis. He knows his spiritual condition. And he knows he needs spiritual healing as well as physical healing. Well, the man obviously does not know who Jesus is. He does not regard him as a possible healer at this point. And he answers Jesus in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, his hopes were in the supposed miraculous powers of this water when an angel would disturb the water. And he answers Jesus according to the viewpoint of this superstitious belief. And he explains that the reason he, has been, he has, hasn't been cured or he's been, uh, it's been a failure to be cured is because he has been in, in able, unable rather. To get into the pool quickly enough. Other people would beat him to it. He's always been beaten by someone. Think of the cruel competition at this pool. The fastest wins among the lame. This is often the way people view life, I think. The strongest, the quickest, the most privileged gets the advantage. Even some religious people feel this way. God helps those who help themselves. If you can't help yourself, then too bad. Well, most of you know that bi- that verse is not in the Bible, and that is not a biblical concept. And so Jesus blows this man's conception of who can be healed and how he can be healed by saying to him in verse 8, get up, take your bed, and walk. Now, in a sense, this would also be a cruel command, wouldn't it? If the man was to rely on his own power to obey. It's not very different than being at this pool and trying to be the first one in the pool among all the other lame and blind people. But that's not what is going on. In verse 9, it says, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. In other words, Jesus instantly healed this man while he was laying down. And he makes this command now possible. You know what happens when your arm or your leg or some appendage has been immobilized for a long period of time. Atrophy takes place. Uh... It loses its muscle tone. But this man, after 38 years, was immediately capable of getting up and holding his body weight, picking up his mat, and able to walk away. And so Jesus was communicating, I think, to this man by asking if he wanted to be healed and then commanding him to get up that you don't have any hope to be healed by your superstitions or by your abilities. I am your only hope of healing by my grace and power. And so he gives this man the ability to get up. He heals him before he's able to get up. And this healing is not qualified. In other words, he doesn't say you must go out and do penance or you must pay me some money. When Jesus heals, it's not determined on anything in the person. Even when he calls a person to have faith, the gift of faith comes from him. And so it's purely and simply by his will and power. And I believe this is a picture of God's mercy and grace in salvation. The next section of our text is the second half of verse 9 through verse 13. God teaches us the dispute over the purpose of the Sabbath. John notes that it was the Sabbath, and that's very important. How the Jews reacted to this man's healing is interesting, isn't it? Now, the Jews here, I think we're supposed to understand, are the Pharisees or those who uh, have been influenced by the Pharisees. And their immediate reaction is, wow, this is wonderful! This man's been healed after 38 years. That's incredible. We're so happy for you. Who did this? We want to find out who this is. Perhaps this is the Messiah. No, that's not what they said. Look at verse 10. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The Pharisees, they believed the Old Testament Scriptures to be the Word of God. They were very committed to God's laws and reverencing God and following His commands. But, they made the mistake in believing that they could obey them perfectly and that they could earn God's favor and merit by obeying the commandments. And to help them do this, they build a hedge around God's commandments called the Mishnah. The fourth commandment forbids work on the Sabbath. But what is work? Well, eventually the Pharisees began to protect the Sabbath law by their own prohibitions in 39 series of laws for the Sabbath. Let me give you some examples of those laws. On the Sabbath, you cannot look into a mirror. Why? Well, if you see an imperfection, if you see a gray hair, for example, you might be tempted to pull it out and that would be work on the Sabbath. You could also not wear your false teeth because if they fell out, you'd have to pick them up and you would be doing work. You could not carry a handkerchief in your hand on the Sabbath, but you could wear it around your neck. In other words, if you Needed to take your handkerchief downstairs, you'd have to hang it around your neck, tie it around your neck, go downstairs and then untie it, and that wouldn't be work. Because traveling was forbidden on the Sabbath, a journey was limited to a thousand yards. But if you wanted to extend your walk, you could tie a rope at the end of your street as much as a thousand yards away from your home, and you could extend your walk another thousand yards by that rope, that rope was an extension of your household those were the kinds of specific laws that the Pharisees came up with to build a hedge around the law, the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath, they were list givers and most good Jews in that day were considered good list keepers Consider this story, for the very first time, this man, after 38 years, a paralytic, was able to walk, and he held his bed under his arm, and there was probably a spring in his step, maybe even skipping with joy, and then he hears a voice behind him. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing with that bed? Do you know that's illegal? So, at first, the Pharisees are upset And they're judging this man who was healed because of their definition of the Sabbath. But then this man tells them about the man who healed him. And now they're interested in this man who healed him and told him he should take up his bed and walk. They were thinking, well, if this guy is guilty, he was just healed, then the guy who healed him on the Sabbath and told him to work is also guilty. We want to know who he is. This is the first record of open hostility to Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And the cause of this hostility is Jesus' attitude and his practices on the Sabbath day. Now what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was instituted by God after six days of creation. God declared that he rested on the seventh day. And it was to be a pattern for all of creation and for mankind to rest on the seventh day. And then later it was codified in the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment, God's people were to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to work on it, nor allow their servants to work on it. And when the people of God were wandering in the wilderness God taught them to follow this pattern in His giving the manna each day. Each morning, manna would come from heaven and they'd have enough to eat for the whole day. But on the sixth day, God would provide a double portion of manna. Why? To hold that second portion for the Sabbath day. So they could eat on the Sabbath day without working. Worship was to be conducted on the Sabbath day. And then as we read in our Isaiah 58 passage, God says that the Sabbath is to be a delight. It's to be a day honorable to the Lord, not by following our own ways. And when Christ came, he said the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But it's not to be a day of idleness. Jesus showed us this by the work that he performed on the Sabbath. He worked deeds of piety. He worked deeds of mercy. And he worked deeds of necessity. And these were all good and appropriate for that day. Now, when Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath day, it became the Lord's Day. In other words, it became the Christian Sabbath. And now, the fourth commandment, we believe, applies to the Lord's day. And so, we are to rest from regular, unnecessary work. We are to recognize the rest that we have in Christ, the rest from our works. And we recognize the eternal rest that awaits us in heaven someday. Now, we're not to view this day as ways to merit God's love or forgiveness, Because Jesus kept the Sabbath for us. And so he has imputed to us his righteousness. And so we have his Sabbath day keeping righteousness credited to our account. Our keeping of the Lord's day isn't to earn righteousness. But knowing that this is how God made us to live before the fall. And so we are to set aside this one day out of seven And it's for our good and benefit. We supplied for you a quote in the bulletin. Perhaps you read it before the worship service. It's from our denomination's Book of Church Order. It's Directory of Worship. And it gives a good summary of how to sanctify the Lord's Day. It says, Let the time not used for public worship be spent in prayer, in devotional reading, and especially in the study of the Scriptures, meditation, catechizing, religious conversation, the singing of psalms, hymns, or spiritual songs, visiting the sick, relieving the poor, teaching the ignorant, holy resting, and in performing such like duties of piety, charity, and mercy. But we are to not be like the Pharisees and add lists of do's and don'ts that are not in the bible or not deduced by necessary inference we're to see this day as a delight to our souls the puritans would call the lord's day a market day for the soul opportunities for us to grow in grace opportunities to express our love to god in worship opportunities for us to love each other serve one another Practice hospitality. Practice mercy. Be refreshed and refresh others to practice our heavenly rest. Well, now we come to the third part of our text where God shows us in verses 14 through 18 the declarations of Christ that led to his persecution. Jesus had withdrawn from this man in the crowds. <laughs> But later on, he finds this man in the temple. Now, why do you think he was in the temple? Well, we recall the story of Luke chapter 17, 14, when Jesus healed the ten lepers. And right after that, he told them to go and show themselves to the priests in the temple. Why? Because that was according to God's commands in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So perhaps this man is doing that. Or perhaps... He just wanted to go and worship God and thank him for being healed. So when Jesus finds this man, he he says to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now what is Jesus communicating? Well, he's saying, See, you are well, meaning this was a true healing this wasn't just an emotional experience you are well but then he says sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you is Jesus saying that those 38 years of being an invalid are because he sinned and is he saying then stop sinning or something worse than this will happen to you I don't think that's what he's communicating Now I'm not discounting the fact that there are consequences to sin and God sometimes may discipline us with the effects of our sin because of our sin, but we can never know if that is why something bad happens to somebody else. Certainly all bad things can be traced back to sin generally, but when his disciples asked him in John chapter 9, if someone born blind was because of his sin, he said this, it was not that, the, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then in Luke chapter 13, Jesus references a tower that fell on 18 men and killed them. And he said, do you think it happened because there were worse sinners than all the others in Jerusalem? He says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so I think Jesus is warning us here not to draw that kind of conclusion when bad things happen to other people, but to look to our own sin and repent. What Jesus was saying here then is He's revealing to this man that He knows His heart. The present tense of the verb no longer sin means no longer continue to sin. He's referring to his present condition. He needed to be reconciled to God by repenting of his sin and believing in God's promise of grace through his Messiah. And if he did not do that, something worse would happen. What is that something worse? Well, I think it's probably a reference to eternal judgment. And so, I think this man had gratitude in his heart And he went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And we're told then that this is why the Jews began persecuting Jesus. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we're told how Jesus responded to these judgments. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, answered the Pharisees, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now that seems like a harmless statement, but it was not to the Jews. They wouldn't have had a problem with the Father working. They they believe the, the Father did rest after his days of creating, but he was still at work accomplishing his will around the world. But what they took great offense to was Jesus calling the Father, my Father. You see, the Jews never used that expression, my father, to refer to their relationship with God because what it meant was that person was saying, I am equal with my father. It was a unique father-son relationship that Jesus claimed on his own. And he was also in essence saying, the father is the Lord of the Sabbath and so am I. He stated that in Mark chapter 2, 28. And so he's justifying what he does on the Sabbath by his intimate relationship, his equality with the Father, and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath just as the Father is the Lord of the Sabbath. And his work is one and the same with the Father's work. Now just in case you think that that's a stretch to interpret it that way, the Jews knew exactly what Jesus was implying with that statement. The claim was not lost on them. It provoked them to a commitment to persecute and kill him. It says in verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew what Jesus was claiming. So, what we've seen is the display of Christ's power to heal, the dispute over the purpose of the Sabbath, the declarations of Christ that led to his persecution. So what? What should be our response? What application can we take away from this text? Let me suggest a few. Number one, this lame man's condition is a picture of our own condition before God. We are helpless spiritually we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. God is holy. The scriptures tell us that he demands perfect obedience to all of his commandments. That means we're to obey the commandments perfectly and thought, word, and deed out of perfect love for God and perfect love for our neighbor. And we cannot do this. It's impossible, because we are born with a sinful nature. We violate God's commandments all the time, either in commission or omission. And God, furthermore, demands perfect justice of us. In other words, He must punish all those violations. And we cannot atone for that debt that we amass of violations against His commandments. And so, therefore, apart from Christ, we stand under God's condemnation and wrath. We are doomed for the day of judgment. And you know what? If we are asked, do we really want to be healed from this? We don't know what this healing involves. We don't know what we need to be healed from unless God opens our eyes and gives us understanding. In our natural state, we don't know what we need to be healed We don't know how much of a sinner we are. We don't know that we cannot work our way to heaven. We're powerless. Instead, like this man, we're looking for the false promises of the world. As he was looking to these superstitious beliefs to try to heal him, we are the same way apart from the grace of God. We look to the world to try to satisfy us, to heal us of whatever whatever is wrong with us deep inside. But what this text teaches us is that true healing is only found in Christ. Why? Because He is the second person of the Trinity. He left heaven and humbled Himself to become a man and yet without sin, still remaining God, in order to provide perfect righteousness for us and forgiveness of our sins by atoning for our sins. He came to be our substitute and so He came to fulfill all the commandments perfectly on our behalf. To impute that credit of righteousness to our account. And He also came in order to be the Lamb of God. To be our perfect atoning sacrifice. He went to the cross to take on Himself all of our sin. The debt of our sin. And He paid that debt through His suffering, His bleeding, and His dying he received the wrath of God, the equivalent of hell for each that he came to die for and who would believe in him. And so to receive this gift, God must heal us first. We can't respond just like this invalid could not respond in his own power to get up and take up his mat and walk. God must cause us to be born again. God must give us the gift of faith and repentance. And when he he heals us spiritually and we exhibit faith and repentance, then the result is we walk by faith. And we are thankful. And we seek to worship God. And we live a life of continual repentance and faith. And we tell others about Christ. We see that to some degree modeled in this man. Jesus' power to heal communicates that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one who came to be our Savior. These miracles validate his claims. He came and he healed many people. But his primary purpose was to show people, declare to people who he was. And he came in order to bring spiritual healing to, And so he calls upon people to believe in him, to surrender their lives to him, and to follow him, and to repent of their sins. That, of course, requires a spiritual miracle. But I ask you, has that occurred in your life? My second application point is this. We can lapse into being like the Pharisees and think we are acceptable and forgiven by our external works and fulfilling man-made lists. As believers, we can lapse into legalism, lapse into Pharisaism. We can begin to think that we are loved and accepted and forgiven by God based on our performance, based on our sanctification instead of our justification. And we can therefore become self-righteous and develop a lack of compassion for others and point our fingers at others we can overlook our own deep sins and hard-heartedness we can begin to judge others by our own external standards we can focus on the speck in someone else's eye instead of the blank in a, a plank in our own eye we can become blind to our need to repent how about you maybe you came to church this morning to worship the Lord, but Jesus is meeting you and saying, you are healed, but you need to turn from your sin. You need to repent. Perhaps you've come this morning and you're holding on to pride, or you're holding on to a grudge, or you're committing a sexual sin, or you're coveting, or some other sin that you've ignored or you've become blind to. And Jesus is saying, repent. Turn from that sin. Trust in me alone for salvation. And as you repent and return to the grace of God and the Gospel, you will experience renewed forgiveness and joy. You'll experience refreshment in God's grace. You'll experience the Sabbath rest that was purchased for us through Christ's work on the cross. My final third application point is how does the Father and Jesus's works on the Sabbath inform us as to what we ought to do on the Sabbath? Yes, Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath for us perfectly. We have his Sabbath righteousness credited to our account We don't seek to do good on the Sabbath day or any other day in order to earn salvation because we already have it by grace through faith if we're Christians. But we are now new creatures in Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are united to Christ and we are being made more and more like Jesus. God made the Sabbath for man before the fall. It's to be observed with great hope, with great joy. It is to be a delight to us. We're to seek to treat it differently than the other six days of the week. Meaning we do not engage in our regular work. We make works of piety a priority. What does that mean? We worship publicly with God's people. We want to be built up in the means of grace. The word, the sacraments and prayer We want to partake of the studying of the Scriptures and catechisms in our Sunday school classes and other group gatherings. And if we believe God wants us to do a work of necessity, then we do it unto the Lord. See, we should seek to do these works of mercy, of piety, and of necessity out of praise to the Lord, meeting the needs of others, encouraging others in need. And when we do this, Christ is working through us and we are strengthened in enjoying the Sabbath rest that we have in Christ and our hope is strengthened as well in the perfect Sabbath rest that awaits us in heaven. And so may God so help us to view this day, the Lord's day as Jesus did. Please pray with me. Oh Lord we thank you for the wisdom of your laws, your commandments. We thank you for your example to us. More than anything, Lord, we thank you that you came and fulfilled the law for us and provided forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for that grace. May you strengthen the faith of believers here this morning. May you show non-believers their real need for spiritual healing. And may you cause them to be born again and give them faith and repentance. And Lord, help us to truly delight In the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.